If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the first of our August 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com for more information or follow us at twitter.com historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. Coming up, we have... There's a lot more to be said about Mary. She's certainly more than the kind of caricatured Catholic tyrant. That was Anna Whitelock there, talking about Queen Mary I. One of the problems that the English and the Welsh have in the 13th century is they're culturally very different. That's Mark Morris on Edward I's invasion of Wales. It's one of the finest castles in the world, and and I I love it because it's had permanent military presence there from the Iron Age to the Cold War. That was Dan Snow on Dover Castle. So, our first interview is with Dr Anna Whitelock of Royal Holloway, University of London. She is our guide in the fourth of our series on the Tudor monarchs, and she'll be talking about the life and times of Queen Mary I. If you're new to the podcast, listen back to our last three episodes and you can hear other historians discussing the reigns of Mary's predecessors. Queen Mary, who ruled from 1553 to 1558, has come down to us now with a moniker bloody mary but as anna whitelock is about to explain she has been undergoing something of a reassessment of late obviously there's a lot to talk about with mary um even though she had quite a short reign 
Um, that's never normally said. That's a kind of new, that's a revisionist idea that there's a lot to say about her. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll get on to that, I think. Um, but the first thing I want to ask you is, what would you say are the key moments in Mary's reign? Well, as I would say, first of all, her accession. Mm -hmm. uh, the manner of her accession, which of course was a, a victory uh, of the localities against the centre. Um, which again, you know, had, wasn't then seen again until the Civil War. So it was a rising of the localities which um, defeated central government. Um, but of course, it was also the accession of, uh, the, it became the accession of England's first crowned queen. Mm. Um, so it was groundbreaking um, in terms of its significance. So I think her accession, for all kinds of reasons, which we'll probably come on to, yeah. is key. Okay. Um, secondly, I would say the Act for Regal Power, which is um, the short title for a very, very long uh, title yeah. act. But this sounds very dry and dusty and boring, but actually this act, which was passed in April 1554, basically meant that in law, females had all the power of male monarchs. So the, the, one of the sort of um, parts of the title is that female monarchs would rule as fully and absolutely as their male predecessors. Because up until that point, statute law referred only to male monarchs. And so some of Mary's kind of supporters were saying, you could actually rule above the law when you become queen. Because actually, no, you know, female uh, monarchs aren't even mentioned by law. So you don't even have to keep to the law. And Mary you know, decided that, no, she wants to rule according to the law. But she's going to confirm an act, the act which says that she has all the power of a king. So this is... You know, this is kind of degendering, if you like, gender neutralising the monarchy. So massive significance. Marriage to Philip, another key moment. Um, obviously, the Anglo-Spanish alliance. It's been one of the things that she's then been subsequently criticised for, of course. But I think we can also see that it was quite politically pragmatic, um, that we shouldn't see it as an inevitable failure. And I think perhaps that the fact that Elizabeth was able to prevaricate over marriage was perhaps partly due to the fact that Mary's marriage had proved so unpopular and so that kind of gave Elizabeth a bit of room for manoeuvre over the question. But also, of course, Mary had negotiated that very delicate balance of being a ruling queen but expected to be a subservient wife. And so that whole question was addressed in Mary's reign. And then I think sort of her Guildhall speech, which was a uh, speech in the midst of rebellion, a rebellion, Wyatt's rebellion, against the Spanish marriage, and this was in a way, this happened in um, January, February 1554. And this was really a moment where she articulated queenship. We really see this articulated for the first time. And she rides out to the Guildhall and she makes this speech, which in many ways has the same kind of rhetorical flourishes as Elizabeth's Tilbury speech, which of course is so famous. And she basically says, you know, as a mother doth love the child, I love you, pluck up your heart, you know, we will defeat these rebels. And in a way, she kind of articulates queenship and she puts it in feminine terms, which is quite bold. You know, she's actually saying, like, you know, understand me um, and see me as a woman and see that as, you know, as a, a strength. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm making a virtue of my femininity. So it's quite a bold statement. But yes, it art sort of articulates queenship and the rebels were defeated and the marriage treaty was passed in Parliament. So that's, you know, that was an important point. Phantom pregnancies. You know, it's part of the popular narrative of Mary's reign. She had these phantom pregnancies, June 1555. She thought she was pregnant. And here I think we see the vulnerability of the Queen and we see the importance, I think, of the body of the Queen and how monarchs' bodies had been important up until this point. But, of course, when you have a woman 
it's a whole level of significance and vulnerability. You know, the sort of um, the vulnerability to sexual slander and rumours that we sort of see under Elizabeth later, but the whole question of fertility, whether you can produce an heir or not. And of course, here is Mary thinking that she's pregnant. Letters are drawn up in advance, ready to announce the fact that she's, she has an heir. And it even, you know, word gets out that she's in fact given birth and then bells are rung and then they have to decide, they say, oh no, actually it hasn't happened. And this becomes a farce really. And it really starts to undermine Mary's credibility. And it's sort of, you know, having made these great strides to overcome her gender, it really emphasises the kind of frail body of a queen. And I think thereafter, in a way, it becomes increasingly a sense of the, the reign as being sort of barren, which of course is what historians have traditionally sort of bought into this idea of this sterile, barren reign with a barren queen. So I think that's important. Of course, the burnings, another important thing, and the loss of Calais, you know, England's last territory in France. Philip persuades Mary to join his war against France. Calais is lost. And, you know, people say, you know, this is the final nail in the coffin of Mary's reputation. Um, and of course, she dies soon afterwards. So it's sort of Calais and the burnings that are really held against Mary, I think. Okay, loads of points to pick up on there. Um, firstly, the accession question: How much was she wanted um, to be queen when, when she, you know, after the death of, uh, of of Edward? Well, of course, I mean, the death of Edward. Edward wanted to prevent a Catholic accession. He wanted to protect the Protestant settlement, the Protestant church that he had established. Him and Mary had had quite uh, well, not violent, but very emotional spats. During his reign, Edward sort of saying, you know, fall into line, you will not observe Catholicism, and Mary saying, absolutely, I will. On his deathbed, wrote Mary out of the line of succession, and instead, ultimately, of course, Lady Jane Grey, who people are sort of familiar with, was declared queen. Can I just stop you? What should we've only we've only covered five Tudor monarchs here? Yeah, and Jane, uh, Jane Grey hasn't been included. Is that is that a blunder on my part? You're okay. She wasn't a Tudor, and she wasn't crowned a monarch. Okay, so she was declared queen. She was proclaimed queen, but she wasn't crowned, and of course she wasn't. You know, she wasn't a Tudor. So you're okay. But she did. You know, she was significant in the fact that she was who Edward thought and named would be the heir who would then preserve the Protestant Church. Mary at the time was of Edward's death, was basically hanging out in East Anglia with her small household moving between residences. The Edwardian government, who were then obviously championing Lady Jane Grey, were based in London. They had the armory, the treasury, munitions, all the instruments of government at their disposal. And of course the tower, Lady Jane Grey takes possession of the tower, really important. So Mary's this figure who has no apparent prospect. Even the Emperor Charles V, who has been her great champion all through the years of divorce and the Catherine of Aragon, um, you know, being pressured by Henry to acknowledge her, uh, the invalidity of her marriage, all of that, Charles V has been crucial. And even he sort of basically sort of says she hasn't got a chance. What happens? There is, a, for a few days, a kind of conflicting picture of people declaring loyalty to Lady Jane Grey, but gradually, Mary's support gathers. Initially, it's Mary's household who mobilise those immediately around them. And it's a Catholic household, as you would expect. Mm. So they, they mobilise their, you know, their, their men, their, the commons in East Anglia. And Mary then flees from Hunsdon in Hertfordshire, where she is, to Kenninghall in Norfolk, 
And then as her support swells, she moves to Framingham Castle in Suffolk. And we start to see a story of legitimacy triumphing over religion. And we see that people, although they knew Mary was Catholic, of course, and they knew Lady Jane Grey was Protestant, Mary quite pragmatically played down her Catholicism. And instead, she focused on the fact that she was legitimate heir of Henry. So ultimately, the reason that this sort of figure that had been written off and was, you know, had no apparent chance, it was legitimacy that ultimately uh, secured her the throne. What were Mary's main achievements? The first woman to be crowned Queen of England, I think there's no doubt that that would be um, the biggest achievement. And I mean, what that means is that she, for the first time, had to negotiate and change and reform or redefine law, as I've mentioned, with the Act for Regal Power, uh, ritual and ceremony. You know, how did you crown a queen? For example, one of the rituals in advance of the coronation would be that Knights of the Bath would be created, you know, um, an order, a chivalric order, and 15 of them would be created. And part of that ceremony would be that they would plunge naked into the bath and then come out and kiss the monarch's shoulder. Now, immediately you have a situation whereby, how does that happen? And so immediately you have Mary having to deputise uh, and give that position to, or sorry, Mary having to, the Lord Steward um, deputises for her. And so immediately these kind of changes, of course, you know, the monarch's private apartments, I mean, sort of, well, it's kind of everybody I think seems to know this now, that, you know, the groom of the stall under Henry, who was in charge of, you know, the royal commode, really, really important position. Well, under Mary, you can't have all these men in the private apartments. So suddenly they're filled with women. How does that work? And so there's all these kind of precedents. Uh, The question of marriage, Mary faces. All of these things that are faced for the first time. So I think that's the biggest achievement. And also Mary, by winning the throne as she does, of course, she also preserves the Tudor line of succession. I mean, she made Elizabeth's succession possible. Because, of course, you know, if she hadn't become queen, then it would have diverted the succession down a different route. Um, And the political sort of dimension of Mary's reign, I think, has been massively overlooked. And the Elizabethan spin doctors, if you like, have John Fox, most of all, Book of Martyrs, has done the most amazing job, really, at putting Mary's reign firmly kind of into the dark and Elizabeth into the light. And people almost thinking that Elizabeth was the first crowned queen and not even sort of seeing uh, Mary as her sort of trailblazer. Okay. What are the failures that you can see? What, what, did, what went wrong in her reign? Well, the main failure was, was kind of two-pronged, I suppose, was the failure produ- to produce an heir mm-hmm. and her untimely death, you know, the failure of her body, if you like, to endure the fact that she dies only after, after five years. Now... In a sense, that's a sort of slightly revised view than you might have had, or you might get from other historians, or you would have got from me probably a few years ago. Because, of course, what she's most uh, condemned for is the burnings. Mm. Even that aspect of Mary's reign has recently been reconsidered, uh, most notably by Eamon Duffy. And in his book, Fires of Faith, he kind of, you know, quite controversially describes the burnings as broadly effective that actually, first of all, we need to put the burnings in the context of the time. Burning was the established uh, punishment for heresy. Yes, it was undoubtedly severe and intense, um, a period of persecution, but, you know, it certainly wasn't unprecedented. Um, And that in some sense, you know, it was effective in stamping out uh, that 
you know, hard core of, um, of Protestants. And uh, Eamon Duffy would argue that by the end of Mary's reign, Catholicism was broadly accepted. So I think the failure for her reign, you know, we shouldn't just think, oh, well, the burnings, that shouldn't have happened and impose some kind of 21st century attitude about that. I think the failure really was that if she'd lived longer, it would have been a very different situation. And if she'd had an heir, again, very, very different. And of course, you know, the whole of historiography that for so long was dominated by the kind of Protestant versus Catholic um, interpretations, that would have been very different. Um, and so, yeah, I think length of reign, failure to produce in their main failures. Okay. Do you think um, you'd be able to uh, summarise your assessment of her legacy for me? Because I suspect that, um, you know, if, I, if I'd have asked you this question maybe 10, 20 years ago, the legacy would have been one of unending bleakness, very, you know, which she wasn't well received. But now she's being rehabilitated by yourself and by others. What's going on? Why is that? What do we know now that we didn't? And, and, and how should we understand her legacy? Well, yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, we have spectacular, well, Henry VII, founder of the dynasty, Henry VIII, you know, massive in all respects. And then we have this sort of nine-year-old boy and then this weekly woman and then of course the glorious Elizabeth and so we were you know this it was very much the place you didn't want to be yeah which in a way was why I wanted to do it because it was kind of uh, you know fertile ground for new thought um, but yes I mean her legacy is what female rule is really really important um, it's placing Elizabeth's reign in a proper context and I think what started to happen is people have began to see that simply focusing on religion is is quite limited a way of understanding Mary's reign. I mean, we've got to put the politics back in and we've got to understand her as a political figure, not just as a Catholic tyrant. And also, I think, you know, historians are beginning to see continuities in all of the Tudor monarchs' reigns and actually downplaying things like gender. You know, because in reality, of course, the Tudor monarchy endured in spite of a minority government under Edward, in spite of two female. And it's sort of like, well, you know, actually, many things stayed the same. It remained a personal monarchy where personality was crucial. People who were trusted and favoured by the monarch remained at the heart of politics. And that is a kind of new view, because, of course, it used to be that we should understand politics during the Tudors uh, as all about the council and parliament and, you know, the organs of government. And then increasingly, of course, sort of famously, David Starkey and other people talked about the groom of the stool, the importance of that character under Henry VIII. But then historians are like, well, clearly under a, a woman, you can't have male trusted uh, intimates. And therefore, does everything just go back to being all about organs of government? And of course, no, it just becomes, it's not just exclusively in the privy chamber, but Mary would still have trusted individuals and trust is remains a crucial political currency and so you start to think actually if we take sort of religion and gender or place them in a kind of broader context actually we can see big issues that are sort of true and um, across the reign it's all about royal authority and all of the monarchs have different challenges about maintaining and exercising and extending royal authority uh, and so you know and those issues are common to all of them so I suppose Mary is therefore being placed back into, into that picture, into that landscape. I mean, there's still work to be done on her, mm. but um, in terms of, I mean, popular perception as much as anything else. 
Um, but I think, yeah, people are starting to reevaluate all the Tudor monarchs. I mean, the shine's been taken off Elizabeth increasingly too. I mean, maybe it's something about, you know, we all like an underdog and maybe now we're suddenly seeing Mary was a bit of the kind of underdog in terms of, you know, her prospects of becoming queen and then in terms of how she's been, you know, she's been dealt a bad hand perhaps in terms of how she's been viewed in posterity. And so maybe we want to champion that now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dr. Anna Whitelock is lecturer in early modern history at Royal Holloway University of London and director of the MA in Public History course there. She's also author of Mary Tudor, England's First Queen, published by Bloomsbury. We're running this series on the Tudors to time with the August edition of the magazine, a Tudor special. And we've also produced a special BBC History magazine Tudors audiobook, where you can hear the full-length interviews that I recorded with all the experts in our Tudor podcast series. Thus you get half an hour each on Kings Henry VII and VIII, Edward VI and Queens Mary and Elizabeth. We're charging just £1.99 for this. You can download it via our website, historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors, and it's being distributed by audiogo.co.uk. Our next interview is with Mark Morris, who's an expert on both castles and medieval history. So he's a great person to talk to for the next subject, which involves castles and medieval history. We're going to discuss the English king Edward I's invasion of Wales at the end of the 13th century. So we're talking about um, the uh, the conquest of Wales by Edward I, which you've written about for the magazine in our Where History Happened series. So um, what we need to do first, I think, is try and set the scene. So could you briefly summarise the situation between England and Wales before Edward came to the throne? Well, immediately before Edward came to the throne, Edward's, Edward's father, Henry III, is a good contrast um, with him because he's um, sort of one of England's weak kings. Nice guy, but um, not a very competent king. Mm. And Henry III's reign is kind of um, dominated in its middle and later years by um, baronial unrest, which becomes rebellion and eventually civil war. So during this time, the, the rulers of Wales, the ruler of Wales, is able to make hay, you know, it's, it's a good time for the, for the Prince of Wales. England is divided so Wales can kind of flourish. Now, to say more about Wales, if you go back into sort of centuries before the 13th century, Wales has always been a very divided country, um, divided into lots and lots of competing rulers. They called themselves kings, but they were really, it was just a personal designation. They were really sort of, every time you went round another mountain, there was another king. Mm. Um, what happens in the 13th century is Wales starts to unify. Um, they, they start to get over the, the problem, which they had this, 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 um, this ancient custom, which was they divided the inheritance among all the brothers or all the male kinsfolk. So every time you had a king and he died, there would be this carve-up between all the members of the family, even, even over something like a kingdom. That starts to sort of disappear in the 13th century. That attitude starts to wane, and you get 
uh, a ruler of, of Wales at the, in the early 13th century, Llewellyn the Great, and in the mid-13th century, a ruler called Llewellyn ap Griffith. And Llewellyn is the first, ki- uh, first ruler of Wales to style himself Prince of Wales. Mm. He's, he's sort of ancestrally Lord of Snowdon, and he owns, or he's inherited, the north-west corner of Wales. Yeah. But he, um, during the reign of Henry III, asserts his um, dominance over all the other kings and princes of Wales, and is recognised in t- 1258... He is recognised as Prince of Wales by all the other Welsh rulers. Mm. So Wales is unified. And was it 1267 that Henry and... Henry recognised it. Eventually, when the civil war in England plays itself out, Henry recognises Llewellyn as Prince of Wales. And he is the first uh, English king to recognise um, a, a, a Welshman as Prince of Wales. So this is, this is a kind of a high point in the history of Wales. It's a kind of cr- literally a crowning moment for Llewellyn. Mm. But then it all goes wrong. OK, so... Henry III dies in 1272, um, and Edward I comes to the throne. Llewellyn at Grifford is still about, Mm -hmm. and he's still calling himself Prince of Wales. Mm. Um, So how does the dynamic change when Edward comes to the throne then? Well, it sort of changes in Edward's absence. Um, Because the problem is, if you go back to 1267, Mm. that high point, there are a lot of questions left unanswered, and Henry... And Edward, as his sort of son and heir, have recognised Llewellyn's um, gains, territorial gains and title. Mm. But um, the Marcher lords, the, these um, English barons with, um, the, whose, whose lands straddle the border between England and Wales, literally a law unto themselves, mm. they're far from happy about the recognition given to Llewellyn because he's taken a lot of land from them and they want them back. And there are certain territories which which are clearly so contentious that they're not even mentioned in that peace treaty, the Treaty of Montgomery of 1267, one of which is um, the struggle that's going on between Llewellyn and the Earl of Gloucester, um, Gilbert de Clare. Mm. Um, this is a sort of struggle for um, part of Glamorgan. And um, that struggle, eventually, it, it, uh, Edward goes off on crusade um, in, in tw- uh, 1270. Um, and while he's gone, he doesn't come back till 1274, his father dies in his absence. So he's gone for four years. And this um, friction between the Marchers and Llewellyn, particularly at first between Llewellyn and, and Gilbert de Clare, mounts and mounts and mounts. So Gilbert de Clare is building Caerphilly Castle, which is one of the places I mentioned in the piece. Mm, in South Wales. Um, and, you know, you can see it's a colossal struggle. Llewellyn attacks it and destroys it. Ed, uh, um, Gilbert rebuilds it. Um, and you've got, so you've literally got this kind of um, arms race going on in the march with Llewellyn building castles like Dolvorwin is one, um, and, and English marchers um, uh, building castles against him. So the, the, the march is militarising. So this, is, this tension is building up in Edward's absence. So when Edward comes back in 1274, he kind of inherits all these other men's grievances, both Llewellyn's and the marchers. Um, and I think it's to Edward's credit, I think this is something that's... that's um, it's not exactly a new idea, it's been around for a while, but it's to Edward's credit that he doesn't take sides when he gets back. And as far as we can see, Edward tries to be fairly even-handed in sorting out this dispute. Not least because Llewellyn owes him a ton of money. The, mm. the Treaty of Montgomery cost about, uh, let's get the figure right, it's 25,000 marks, I think, in the end, which is about 16,000, 17,000 pounds, um, which is a huge sum of money. It's equivalent to Edward's, you know, getting on for his annual income from, from ordinary revenue. So Edward, and Edward is massively in hock as a result of his crusade, so he wants that money. Mm. So all the letters going to his bailiffs on the border and sheriffs are saying, let's not upset Llewellyn. You know, let's, let's try and, you know, make sure he's happy and then we get the money. 
is, is the kind of um, logical inference. Does does Cleland have the money? This is, I mean, this is one of the arguments. This is my take on it anyway. Is that Cleland writes letters saying we're ready to pay the money just as soon as you sort out the dispute. But Cleland clearly doesn't have anything like this sum of money. I mean, one of the first complaints that comes out against him when he uh, after the First Welsh War is how much he's been oppressing his people, trying to screw money out of them. Llewellyn mm. wants the sort of the, the, the problems in the march solved, and he sort of wants it on his own terms. They, they end up having an argument about homage, mm. Edward and, and, um, uh, and Llewellyn. Um, because Cluen owes Edward homage. Part of the tr- terms of the Treaty of Montgomery, I mean, you might say, if you were sort of coming at this from a sort of Welsh nationalist point of view, why why should Llewellyn have bowed down to Edward anyway? You know, well, the answer is because the Welsh had always done that. You know, w- um, whatever you think of that, the Welsh have been doing that since, you know, the days of King Alfred. And they accepted it. They accepted that was the sort of the natural state of affairs. England, you know, was the dominant power in the British Isles, and they kowtowed to England. They, they, you know, they, they, they just sort of did it to keep the English off their backs. They didn't sort of, um, uh, um, sort of really read too much into it, but that's, they'd always done that. And Clewellyn does it very gladly in 1267 because being recognised by England means he is kind of recognised in his position as the dominant power in Wales. Mm. So, you know, he's Prince of Wales and he can turn to the King of England, his overlord, to back that up if, if, if Welsh, other Welsh rulers start to get uppity and try and divide Wales up again. Yeah. So he's very happy with that state of affairs, but he does pay through the nose for it, as I say, or does agree to mortgage this new principality at a very, very high rate. And the problem for him, I think, by the early 1270s is he can't keep up with the repayments. Right. And so... Um, then they get into this argument about homage, like, I'll give you the money, you know, once um, you've sorted out this border dispute. And, and Edward ends up saying, look, we have no relationship until you bend, you know, kneel down before me and do homage to me. This is the, this is the fundamental on which our relationship is based. And Llewellyn starts to try and make that conditional. Right. Uh, there's a, I think there's a personal turning point when Edward goes all the way up to Chester uh, to receive Llewellyn's homage, and Llewellyn doesn't show up. Mm. And that really kind of embarrasses Edward, I think. I mean, he writes very angrily to the Pope and saying, we demeaned ourselves to do this, and he didn't show. Yeah. Um, so I think from that point it becomes personal, and then it very, you know, within the next 18 months there's an inevitable slide to war. And so, and so the war is personal. Edward is angry. It becomes personal, um, but it's, as I say, it's, 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 he's sort of the, the, the inheritor of all these other grievances. Um, and... So yes, I think I think the twelve seventy six twelve seventy seven war is 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 really a kind of fairly conventional sort of um, war of, of, along the lines of you know a rebellious vassal um, won't bow down and you, you, Edward marches in to kind of um, you know punish his contumacy you know it's it's not it's not sort of a national struggle which is what the second war is about. Right. So, so talk us through the first war then. Edward sends in an army from... Well, leads in. I mean, medieval kings, if they're any good, lead from the front. Edward, uh, Edward spends a long time mustering his forces from, you know, the war is declared in November 1276, it's, 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 um, but the muster isn't due to take place until the following summer. So they have a long time to prepare and they really kind of muster a lot, all the necessary vitals and um, material in Chester. They also go in in the mid, in the mid Wales, and they, they, Edward's brother leads a force from the south. So they kind of close in on Wales. Edward leads this very large army into northwest Wales, 16,000 men at one point. Llewellyn is basically sort of surrounded. The Edward drives this juggernaut in. Um, they retreat into the mountains of Snowdonia. Now, at this point, see, Llewellyn is probably counting on the fact that Ed, he's fought Edward and won in the past, mm. when Edward was um, heir to the throne. 
the Lord Edward. He's gone in with Henry III 20 years earlier, and Henry III kind of chases the Welsh back to the River Conwy, looks at the mountains of Snowdonia and says, oh my goodness, it's getting a bit cold. Perhaps we should just leave it at that, you know, push him back into his foxhole, and they just retreat. Um, whereas when Edward gets to that point, he um, has this kind of strategic masterstroke of seizing Anglesey, mm. the island off the northwest of Wales, which is um, lowland, unlike the rest of Gwynedd, which is mountainous, and it's arable land, so that's where all the, the grain necessary for surviving the winter is going to be for, for Llewellyn. And Edward sends in about, I think it's four or five hundred harvesters to, to seize the Welsh harvest. So he, it's very much like a siege, he just starves Llewellyn out. And mm. uh, in um, September um, 1277, Llewellyn submits. Mm. So that's an end to it then? So that's an end to, well, that's a sort of, it's the end to a fairly kind of conventional, as I say, conventional war. Mm. Um, although it's done on a sort of grand, impressive scale. Mm. Um, it's, um, yeah, Llewellyn submits. He, is, he, he, he sort of finally kind of um, submits to Edward and puts himself entirely at his mercy, at which point Edward is kind of com sort of conventionally magnanimous uh, in victory. He first of all charges um, Llewellyn this huge sum of money for having um, this very diminished um, Snowdonia back. Mm. But then he waves that when Llewellyn finally swears um, homage to him. Yeah. He makes Llewellyn come and do that in Westminster. Right. So it's very symbolic, you know, the Prince of Wales bowing before the King of England in Westminster Great Hall. Yeah. And so Llewellyn at that point is reduced to what he had been at the start of his career. He's yeah. just merely now, he's, although he's called Prince of Wales, uh, it's almost sort of a mockery hanging around his neck because he's just really Lord of Snowdonia now again. So, so Edward in 1277 has comprehensively won, and that's the end of the story. Presumably. Comprehensively to the extent that he's reduced Llewellyn, put Llewellyn in his place. But, but he hasn't conquered Wales. He's taken a lot of territory away from Llewellyn. Llewellyn is now very diminished. There's a sort of an interesting question as to whether Edward was aiming for total conquest at that point, which one letter might imply, um, or whether he was always going to be content to say, well, look, you know, this is going to be a lot of hard work to go into the mountains and chase this guy out. Um, and he's sort of submitted, you know, so it would be kind of an overreaction to kind of, you know, crush him since he's offering to submit. So they just kind of leave it at that. So why, why do we have more why fighting? Why do we have more? Well, the short answer is because the Welsh rebel mm. uh, in 1282, so five years later, um, that again, that, that's, that takes some explaining. Um, I mean, the rebellion, the first thing to say, I suppose, is the rebellion is not started by Llewellyn. Um, it's started by his younger brother, Daffith. Mm. Um, and it's in league with lots of other um, aggrieved Welsh um, princes, chieftains, rulers, leaders, call them what you will, um, lords. It's clearly a well-coordinated national uprising. Um, and the reason behind it is because the English have gone in in 1277, taken over large tracts of, of, of particularly um, north and northeast Wales, behaved in a way which has as as um, uh, oppressed the Welsh essentially. If you were being very cynical, you could say, "Well, this is obviously this is what they're aiming to do. They're aiming to sort of you know provoke them into a fight." Mm. I, I think that's just too cynical. I think I'm sure the English went in and behaved very badly as kind of conquerors tend to. One of the problems that the English and the Welsh have in the 13th century is um, they're culturally very different. They've got very different assumptions about, well, they have different laws, 
I obviously speak a different language. Mm. So, you know, you have English administrators coming to manage these new lands. They can't understand what the natives are saying. It's, you know, it's a, it's a traumatic event, the conquest of Wales, as the Norman conquest for the English two centuries earlier. You know, they, 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 the two peoples don't get on. Um, and so um, the Welsh sort of um, complain about English officials. This is complain after the event in 1282. They complain um, about English officials oppressing them, worse than Saracens. They talk about how um, their laws are being disregarded. Um, and so they build up this kind of, this head of steam, this rhetoric about oppression, which I'm sure to some extent is justified. But I don't think, I don't think the English went in intending to do that. I think it was just that was the way they thought Wales should be governed. Right. You know, the way imperialists do. You know, yeah. these people are... They, the English literally considered the Welsh to be sort of, you know, untermenschen. Right. Um, you know, they, they, since the 12th That's century... That's quite strong. Well, yeah, but they'd been, considered, been writing them up as barbarians. Mm. You know, that they had... Um, they, they, were, they were sort of... They, they were lazy. Um, they didn't... You know, they... they they were, they were sort of, uh, that's why they were sort of economically backward, they were too lazy to work properly, they'd just rather stand around, you know, tending sheep than setting themselves to the plough. Um, they were sort of sexually deviant, you know, they married within the prohibited bounds of consanguinity. Um, they had a very sort of, it was very easy to divorce under Welsh law. You know, these are the kind of things being said by the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm. criticisms levelled at the Welsh in the 13th century. And do, and do you think English people actually believe that, or were those statements made for political expediency to no because they're not being they're not being made by politicians they're being made by um, sort of monastic chroniclers right. uh, from from the sort of 11th 20s 11 30s onwards and 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 you know the the one theory is that this you can see this intensifying in the 12th and into the 13th centuries i mean some some scholars would disagree but i i, I certainly see it intensifying mm. and so it's it's a hostile stereotype is created of the welsh by the english and of course that in that um, affects the way the English as conquerors when they go in or you know the new administrators going into North Wales to these newly conquered bits of Wales after the first war um, treat the Welsh you know they're not treating them as equals so they rebel so they rebel and Edward sends in the armies again Edward's really I mean the Welsh are really crossed this time but Edward is really crossed this time I mean it's, I think one of the things that you can see that is that one of the, the, the pieces of evidence that suggests it's not a cynical exercise. You know, they weren't sort of just poking the Welsh, prodding them, oppressing them, so they could justify a conquest. Is that Edward's letters seem truly shocked when he hears about the Welsh rebellion? He's effectively on holidays, kind of out in somewhere in um, the, the West Country or the Southwest Midlands. He gets news that the the Welsh, and it's Easter time as well. It's Holy Week. Have risen up and attacked his towns and castles, and uh, you know, killed people. And it's been led by Daffythap Griffith, who was his ally in in the first war. Um, and, you know, he's he, he's very cross about Daffith in particular. Sort of says, you know, we we sort of took this man into our trust, and you know, raised him in the, the raised him up within the palace, and um, you know, he's sort of he basically says he's damned, you know. For this, um, and, so, and there's a very, very quick muster. Then you know, it's, it's all of a sudden the writs start flying out, and Edward is getting men again from all over England, and then also sort of crossbowmen up from Gascony and men from Ireland. It's it's a sort of all this sort of manpower being poured into Wales because, you know, unlike the first war, which is very controlled and it's a very sort of gradual build up of troops, this is a a rebellion. His castles are under attack, so he, he musters very quickly. He does have the advantage this time, of course, that it, after the First War, he has cemented his hold on the territories he's taken by building um, several new castles. Mm. He's built castles like Flint, Rithlin, and to the south in Aberystwyth. Mm -hmm. So he's sort of um, surrounded um, Clewellyn in Snowdonia with castles. 
on the other hand, it's 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 a more difficult war because um, it's not just Edward bringing down an unpopular prince in Llewellyn. A lot of the fighting in the first war was done against Llewellyn by the Welsh, by Welsh auxiliaries who surrendered very quickly in the south and ended up joining Edward's army. I think sort of 60-70% of the army in the First War are Welsh against Llewellyn. Whereas this is much more, 1282-3, a war of national resistance against an, in a, a foreign enemy. So this is much more a national uprising. And so it, consequently they're sort of fighting over every castle and every river valley. So they have to kind of go in and kind of take take it area by area. So it takes quite a long time to drive into the northwest. Mm. Um, and when they get to um, sort of uh, winter is approaching in November 1282, the English suffer this big disaster. Um, they're sort of, they're ready to go in for the kill. And um, we're not sure whose initiative it's taken on, but Edward has built this time a bridge of boats across the Menai Strait from Anglesey to Bangor. And it seems that the local commander just thought we can go in. They sort of saw an opportunity to get Llewellyn, sort of, you know, sort of an assassination yeah. attempt, uh, at least a strategic strike. And it goes terribly wrong. The Welsh kind of see them coming. They descend on the bridge and lots of English knights die, die by being killed or by drowning trying to get back. So at that point, it becomes, if not before, at that point, it becomes a war of total conquest. The Welsh send Ed Edward a great letter as well, or they send a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but it's clearly intended for Edward, basically saying, we don't recognise you, you know, you're a, you're a foreigner, a stranger, why should the people of Wales bow down before a, you know, a lord whose laws and tongue and, you know, all these kind of cultural markers, we're, we're sort of, we have nothing to do with you. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's clearly conceived at that point or expressed as a clash of civilizations, a clash of cultures. Um, and then Llewellyn dies. I mean, Llewellyn, Llewellyn realizes he's surrounded, makes this dash for the border to open up a new front, sees an opportunity, but seems to have been lured into a trap and is killed in battle um, in uh, December 1282. Mm -hmm. Which is really, although he'd been unpopular at an earlier stage, you know, he is their best chance, you know, if they can't, so they can't, uh, once he's gone, they're, they're not going to uh, be able to beat Edward I. What about Daffod? Daffod temporarily takes the title of Prince of Wales, but spends the rest of the next, the last four months of his life, three months of his life, um, running around, you know, trying to organise resistance, but its resistance is crumbling at that point. The English have crossed the Conway, they've gone into Snowdonia early in 1283, and this is further than any king of England has gone before, you know, and they're sending in thousands of troops, pushing up from the south, pushing in from the northeast, combing the mountains, looking for um, Daffith and Welshmen surrendering in their droves. So this is the, 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 the Wales in its death throes. Mm. Daffith is captured on, on the sort of uh, slopes of Mount Snowdon, um, taken to Shrewsbury where he is executed, um, which is pretty harsh. I mean, the, the, the English in since since the conquest don't kill noble prisoners um you know they 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 have a, a code of chivalry if you like they so if you if you look at the history of england between the death of earl Walthyoff in 1076 right down to the early 14th century no earl is is executed you know no 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 high-ranking nobleman and yet here's edward executing the, the sort of self-appointed Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. um, now, you could, they could get around that by sort of saying, well, you know, the chivalry doesn't really apply to the Welsh because they're not really playing by the same rule book. But it was clearly seen as a, a major step 
Uh, I mean, Edward is quite careful in summoning a parliament to Shrewsbury and making sure it's a kind of a, a communal decision mm. to execute this man. Yeah. But um, it's a watershed moment. So the Welsh are defeated, and then Edward further cements his position by building all these these astonishing castles. Yeah, I mean, he's built three castles after the... Well, built three new castles, repaired some old ones after the First War. Um, and then, with Wales conquered, he starts to build more. And the ones that he builds after 1282 are the more famous ones, because they are, you know, five times more spectacular. It's almost like, you know, it's by this point, the English kind of political military machine is up in arms, and they are sort of dreaming grandiose dreams. At this point... This is the point where Edward starts to conceive of himself as a conqueror, you know. Um, we sort of imagine these people, I think, originally sort of as small children, kind of playing with their toy castles and stuff. So, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to conquer Wales. But I think it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you've conquered a country, there are people coming forward. You know, there are Welshmen submitting. Um, and, and you know, he knows he's done something which no previous king of England has done, you know. Um, this has been talked about for centuries. But he has now conquered Wales. He's been further than the previous king. So they, no wonder they start to get big-headed mm. and want to build big, dramatic castles. So they start, he starts building these castles. Conwy, which is a fantastic, compact castle um, with sort of towers and turrets and flags flying. Um, Harlech, you know, spectacular um, castle on the west coast. And, and the grandest one of all is Carnarvon, because unlike all the others, which are, although they're, they are different in many respects, they have certain common features, like they have round towers and whitewashed walls. Um, Carnarvon is not only bigger, but it has polygonal towers and walls which are left bare to reveal stripes of different coloured stone, banded masonry, which, you know, I go with the conventional view here, is a deliberate allusion to the walls of Constantinople. Um, there was a Welsh legend that con connected um, northwest Wales with Constantinople, the Emperor um, Constantine. Well, the Emperor Maximus, who was the father of Constantine, was said to have been born at Carnarvon. So I, th I, I see it as a, as a deliberate allusion to um, that imperial past. You know, so Edward is saying, I'm a new emperor, I'm a, you know, I'm a new conqueror. There's, there's a reason that castle has eagles on its famous tower, the Eagle Tower. You know. he's, he's building these not just fortresses, not just palaces, but huge architectural statements of his power as a conqueror so for that for that reason the 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 story the edwardian conquest of wales lends itself very nicely to our where history happened feature because we can trace it through these castles as we've done um, but one of the places you, you mentioned to to highlight the story is glastonbury mm. which obviously isn't in wales no so what why, why should Glastonbury? well be? because um and this is something that i i stuck my neck out on when i wrote my book on edward is that edward goes to glastonbury in um 1278, three or four months after having defeated Llewellyn. So Llewellyn kneels before him at Christmas 1276. The next major festival in the Christian calendar, Easter, Edward goes to Glastonbury. And he goes there to dig up the bones of King Arthur. Now, the monks of Glastonbury had claimed since, uh, I think, the 1180s that they had the bones, the tomb of King Arthur. And this is where I, I sort of uh, run the risk of, of, of antagonising Arthurian true believers, because that tomb was obviously a fake, because there was no such person as King Arthur. You know, this is where you get letters, but I'm perfectly prepared to believe that there was a man in, I don't know, the 2nd century AD in Britain, a Roman general or leader, called Arthur. 
not a problem with that. Just as I'm prepared to accept there was a person, you know, in, in sort of um, 2,000 years ago in Galilee called Jesus who gave the Romans some grief. But it doesn't follow from that that I have to believe in King Arthur and Camelot and round tables and all the other things that go with it, not, just as I don't have to believe in, you know, feeding 5,000 people with five fish or five loaves or whatever it is. So... Um, King Arthur, you know, the, 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 the king of all Britain, that, that, all that bit is made up. And that's why I sort of have no truck with the sort of, um, you know, well, there might have been an Arthur. Yes, there might have been an Arthur, but there was, no, there was no King Arthur who ruled all of Britain. This bit is an invention of the later Middle Ages. Geoffrey of Monmouth. Geoffrey of Monmouth being in particular the culprit. And people you get writing after Geoffrey of Monmouth saying... Uh, like William of Newborough in the 1170s, saying all this stuff about King Arthur, I've checked in my venerable bead, all this stuff about King Arthur is made up, and this man was a liar. The problem is, for people like William of Newborough, is that Geoffrey of Monmouth is a medieval bestseller. There are more copies of Geoffrey of Monmouth than almost anything else except for the Bible. Hundreds of copies exist. So it was hugely popular, and it's a whole industry. It's means like Harry Potter if there was no copyright. You know, everybody loves it, and it just generates more and more and more stories. Um, now, some, I dare say that the English, some of them, they could say, well, this is clearly a sort of fantastical story. But they definitely believe that Arthur had existed, as Geoffrey of Monmouth had described. Um, and so the monks of Glastonbury sort of think, well, we, we weren't in on this. They, they, I think, fake the tomb in the 1180s. Um, but it's a good forgery, people are taken in, and by the 13th century, by the time Edward is born, it's, it's, it's just more proof that Arthur lived, you know. Of course Arthur lived, he's got a tomb. Mm. And so, you know, uh, this, and we can see Edward believes in Arthur, the re reality, as everybody did, the reality of a historical Arthur. Um, he writes to the Pope in 1301 when he's fighting the Scots and lists all the precedents for the kings of England having been rulers of Scotland, um, including ones that we know to be bona fide, like King Athelstan in the 10th century, ruling over Scotland, and in the distant past, King Arthur. You know, Arthur and Athelstan mentioned in the same breath. So he, they have no distinction um, between what we know to be legend and, 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 and history. They, to them, it was a continuum. So our, Edward goes to, um, to, to Glastonbury to, to visit Arthur's tomb and to dig him up. Now, again, some people uh, get emails about this from time to time. Some people say, oh, well, let's clearly just fandom on Edward's part. You know, he is doing with Arthur what his father, Henry III, did with Edward the Confessor. It's just hero worship. And he's not sending any particular political message. To which I say, in that case, it's surprising that he's never been before. Edward's pushing 40. He's 38, I think. In, in, yeah, just 38 going on 39 at that point. He's no evidence he's ever been to Glastonbury before, if he's a big fan of it. Arthur. There's no evidence. We, I can say for a fact he never goes again. So if he's a fan, this is a sort of, this is a curious thing. It's curious that he goes to Glastonbury within months of defeating the Welsh and digs up Arthur. So what's he playing with digging up Arthur? Well, of course, Arthur, the Arthur story is about King Arthur is a British king fighting against the Anglo-Saxons, the Saxon invaders, i.e. the English. The people who sort of claim Arthur as their own in the 13th century are the Welsh. Mm. You know, the, they are the descendants of the Britons. The Britons. Uh, and when you get this in the propaganda that the, the uh, Welsh are sending against Edward in 1282. They, you know, they, they are the descendants of Arthur. Um, they're the descendants of Brutus. They're descendants of Arthur. So this, this, um, this mythology as we would see it, or history as they regarded it, was very much on people's minds. And I think to conclude this, I think what, what Edward is doing at that point is digging up Arthur to say, well, I mean, he's honouring him, reburying the bones in great splendour, giving him a new tomb, but he's also saying this man is dead. Mm. Because, as I'm sure you'll know, Arthur was the once and future king. 
you know, he's not, the story went, he's not dead, he's just resting. <laughs> he's just stunned. Um, he's one day going to come back, so the Welsh believed. Um, so he has, has this messianic quality, which I think Edward is putting to bed in the wake of his first war. I see it entirely as part and parcel, along with the castles and the legal reforms, um, and everything else Edward does in the wake of the First Welsh War. It's to put the issue of Wales and Arthur to bed. Okay, so last question. Yep. By the by, the death of Edward, mm-hmm. was the issue put to bed? Was Wales fundamentally and thoroughly conquered and under um, the English fold? Yes. I mean, the Welsh have one more major rebellion um, in 1294, which Edward crushes, sort of with, sends in even the biggest army he's ever sent in, 37,000 men, and builds one more great castle, which is um, Beaumaris on Anglesey. Um, I know some people have written that rebellion up as a sort of tax revolt. I mean, there were clearly some people who, who, who wanted it to, saw it as a nationalist rising, which is going to drive out the English, because the, the, the leader of that rebellion, in the north at least, is a guy called Madoch Aplachelen, distant cousin of Llewellyn's. Um, and he styles himself Prince of Wales. So there's a kind of sense of, you know, oh, we're going to get this up and going again, this Welsh nationalism. But I think a lot of the, the support for that rebellion was it was about high taxes being imposed from England. Um, but the, I mean, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, the Welsh at that point never drive the English out again. There are rebellions in the south in 1316, and there's a more famous rebellion in 1400, the, the Glendower um, Rebellion. But Wales remains a conquered country. So, in that sense, Edward's, con- Edward's conquest—well, not, not in that sense—Edward's conquest was permanent. That was Mark Morris, whose book A Great and Terrible King, Edward I and the Forging of Britain, was published by Hutchinson. And you can read Mark's contribution to our Where History Happens series, talking about the conquest of Wales in the August edition of the magazine. Finally, I caught up with historian and TV presenter Dan Snow, who's fronting, alongside Sean Williams, a brand new primetime BBC One history series called National Treasures Live. For five weeks, the show will be touring the country, coming live from some of Britain's finest heritage sites. So I asked Dan to preview the first episode. The first film was at Dover Castle. Right. It was essentially Henry II's magnificent castle, one of the finest castles in the world, and, and I, I love it because it's had permanent military presence there from the Iron Age to the Cold War, to the 1980s. You know, they had, obviously, Iron Age fortifications there, uh, People forget, it's got one of the finest Roman ruins in the UK. Yeah, it's, got, it's got a three-storey lighthouse. It's yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, they've got a very fine Saxon church. They've got, uh, of course, they've got, then they've, got, uh, they've got all sorts of medieval stuff, but largely Henry II's and then his son's um, extraordinary um, castle. Uh, and then, of course, they've got World War II. They've got Napoleonic stuff. They've got World War II tunnels. And they've even got right down at the bottom, they've even got a, a regional seat of government from the Cold War in the event of a nuclear strike. South East England to be run from Dover Castle. Mm. So there's so much history. There's so much, something for everybody. OK. So a, a, a lovely place to, to film and to be um, and a great place for people to visit. Obviously, there's, you know, there's, as you said, there's 2,000 years of history to explore there. Um, what sort of things are you going to be looking at in that, in that programme? We've got the incomparable Lucy Worsley uh, looking at chivalry. This whole question of did it exist? Were knights really good, or whether was it just sort of you know pillage and looting by another name? And that'll be that'll be good fun. We got Lenny Henry looking at uh, racism in World War Two for the service men and women who came back, who'd served in the British forces during the war from the Caribbean, and then came back after the war and was sort of dealt, uh, do, tra- treated with you know, sort of racist uh, attitudes. 
Um, and then we also have a strange, uh, a strange segment in each programme where I'll be travelling around the UK with uh, the celebrity hairdresser Michael Douglas from The One Show. And he doesn't know anything about history, he left school at 15 without any history qualifications at all. Uh, and it's an attempt for me to enthuse him about history, teach him about some big, broad themes in British history and uh, show him some places that were so instrumental in, in, in forming the present. And so what's, where are you going for the first one? In the first one, we were looking at the Normans. Since we're in a big, uh, we're in a big uh, Plantagenet castle, we thought we'd look at the, how, the, how the, uh, the French first arrived here. We'd look at the, the Normans. And, and Michael Douglas asked me who Norman was. So I can try and explain. Okay. So obviously you want people to, to come to these shows, don't you? So uh, do you want people to come to Dover Castle? I'd really love people to come to Dover Castle. I think it's important to have lots of people there. I, I'm keen that history isn't presented as this sort of slightly niche, weird uh, thing, but it's actually, it, it's shown as the popular movement that it most definitely is. You know, it's one of the most popular GCSEs, most popular A-levels, most popular subjects in university, for example. Yeah. I think it's important to get people out. Uh, and so if anyone wants to come down, they should get in touch with Dover Castle, uh, check the website for updates. Uh, the English Heritage website for Dover Castle, and we'd love to see people. National Treasures Live starts on Wednesday the 10th of August at 7.30pm on BBC One. That's it for this week. Thanks to everyone who completed the Kindle poll that I talked about recently. The response was a fairly comprehensive yes to a Kindle edition, so we'll see what we can do about that. Of course, as ever, we're keen to know what you think about the podcast, so do email any observations to podcasthistoryextra.com or contact us via Twitter or Facebook. Just a reminder that the website for our new Tudor audiobook is historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors, a snip at £1.99. And next week we have Susan Duran on Elizabeth I, Richard Noakes on the Victorian Telegraph, and another preview from Dan Snow. I do hope you'll listen in. <laughs>